Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I have a really interesting conversation with my good friend, Robert Goldberg. Robert is a former serial entrepreneur turned venture capitalist, now private equity investor, who has seen a lot of different things in his career. We dive into what he sees are two crises facing America, a crisis of incrementalism and a crisis of alignment. It's a fascinating conversation that really looks at shared prosperity, the challenges of wealth inequality, and what can be done about it at the entrepreneurial level, at the board level, and at the government level. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Robert Goldberg. Now on with the podcast. Welcome, Robert, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. Thanks for coming today, Robert. I've been looking forward to talking with you. Well, awesome to see you, especially in uh, the socially distanced environment we have. I haven't seen you in quite some time. I know. It's been a while. It's just we're adjusting to the new norms of uh, the COVID world. But uh, I'm really excited to have you on the on the podcast. You know, you've been a, a good friend of mine and a mentor and a business partner, and we've been through a lot together. Yeah, it's been fun. Look, uh, as you go through life, it's uh, not the money you make, but the people you collect. And uh, very happy to have had that journey with you. Oh, thanks, Robert. I appreciate that. You know, you're one of the most interesting people that I have met through these journeys. I mean, you have such an interesting background. And also, you have this vision for seeing things that a lot of other people don't see. But why don't you start a little bit by giving the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. And first of all, thank you for the kind words. I uh, You uh, probably overstate that, but uh, hopefully I can be interesting for your listeners. So I think you know a little bit about my background. You know, I started as an entrepreneur, actually, as a technology entrepreneur on the East Coast, uh, engineer by training, migrated to the West Coast. I've been involved in almost any kind of technology you can think of for about 40 years from supercomputers and workstations, the AI in the 80s, if you can believe it. Most of your listeners probably didn't know it existed until about five years ago. I caught the entrepreneurial bug, uh, I think, actually on an AI startup that we took public in the 1980s, and then a supercomputing company, ended up on the West Coast, and ended up in, again, sort of everything from SaaS software to gaming companies. And then uh, never a straight line. I've had, uh, actually, I usually tell people I had more failures than uh, successes, but fortunately, a handful of successes along the way. And you learn from both, quite honestly. I ended up as a, a venture investor, now a private equity investor in the kind of the last 15 years. And I've, you know, been spending, you know, kind of most of my time doing that. And migrated to Nevada, which 20 years ago, which, you know, sometimes you're lucky. I ended up in a state that I think is, you know, phenomenal. Well, I think it just, you know, some of us have vision. You just, you had a little bit more vision than most to come here 20 years ago. You, you could see what was possible before most people could. It just took a while for it to catch up to your vision. You know, it's again, very kind. I'd like to believe that, but, you know, sometimes, uh, Luck intersects vision. So it was, uh, I will say that I recognized, I think, what Nevada could be as it was evolving. I'm not sure I knew that when I moved here, but um, I was probably lucky to do that. Well, I think that's, you know, our paths crossed early on around TED, but I think, you know, almost probably the first time I met you, you started talking to me about what you thought was possible for Nevada at a time when, quite honestly, we were trying to remake 
what was possible in the North and just trying to figure out our way. So I, you've always been supporter, you know, guiding light in that whole journey. And I always appreciated your ability to take what you're seeing from the technology perspective in the Bay and across the country and then help sort of right size it or help us make sense of it in Nevada. Well, it's been a phenomenal journey with you and Mike and other folks in the community. And I have to say, I think, uh, again, we were visionary and lucky in some of that respects. But I'd say the kind of the biggest gratifying thing for me has been to realize what I think when you and I met was really a, a driving force, which probably about a decade ago, I recognized that, you know, the technology industry quite frankly, created a successful career for me, both from a personal standpoint, economic standpoint, but it also leaves a little bit of a kind of a trail of destruction behind it, you know, at times. And I became increasingly concerned about that we, that the technology industry was in fact uh, creating this economic divide. And it was starting to become obvious in places like Reno, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the partnership that we've had in trying to solve and level the kind of economic playing field for folks. I think that we've had a lot of conversation around this. And actually, we, for those of you that know, we launched a blueprint conference. Well, gosh, it was a while ago now. I don't three know. Three years ago, I think. Actually. It's got to be longer than that. <laughs> it's been a while, but maybe it was three years ago. The But around this idea of like, how do you bridge the divide? Like, how do you provide or how do you bring tech to the flyover cities? And I think that was you know, one of the first things that you and I really kind of put or got together to work on. But it sounds like you've taken some of that initial thoughts around Blueprint and evolved them. But why don't you tell me a little bit about I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is so you could share kind of your vision for what's going on, what you've learned through the journey of Blueprint and now kind of where you see the, the challenges sure. ahead. So the original premise 10 years ago, we started seeing what I think is an existential threat to the country, right, which is normally portrayed as a political divide. And you could see the seams of that, you know, starting to tear apart even 10 years ago. And when I thought about what the root cause was, why people were beginning more polarized politically, it really occurred to me that it was economically driven. And I think that's, Doug, where you and I started the conversation. And quite frankly, I think 10 years ago, people thought I was crazy. And over time, people have realized that that really is a serious problem. There's been serious studies by the Brookings Institute and other, I think, neutral think tanks that really correlate the divide to economics. And so, that causes all sorts of really uh, detrimental effects. And the original premise was that if we can solve, we can level the playing field and create equal access to opportunity, then we can start to, you know, I think, close that gap. And it quite frankly is, you know, what the country was founded on. And not to be corny, but, you know, it's the American dream, but it's largely been abandoned. And again, the original premise was that you could bring better tech jobs, you know, to places that didn't have them that would create better pain and uh, uh, jobs and better careers for people. And, you know, that would do it. And I think that was the journey that you and I set off on. And I think we've largely proved that that's been successful. Problem, quite frankly, it's been not successful enough, you know, to actually have the desired effect. And I'm not too proud to admit that it was kind of arrogance that would think that 
technology. Everybody should have a technology job, and uh, you know that'll solve the problem. Unfortunately, it's just not true. So. Sure. Although I would say, you know, especially in Nevada, being able to plant the flag around that really helped change the conversation. I can't tell you how many times I was frustrated when we were talking about workforce development, and we said software is the most sought-after job in the world, and yet people couldn't figure that out in Nevada. They would point to all these people and like, well, we don't see that here. And so it was really difficult to get the people that were policymakers and, you know, the schools to really focus on technology. So it was, you know, so to come in here and, and say that and, and have, you know, think communities to point to, I think was really helpful. And, and of course, you know, if you look back at that time, you had all this concentration of wealth and density of startups on the coasts and this divide in the country. So I, I think that, you know, you were absolutely correct, but it sounds like maybe not to the magnitude. Like that was an, it's a critical first step, but maybe that's not the whole solution. Well, like any good entrepreneur, you pivot, you iterate to success. So my goal is to, uh, you know, have super prosperous, super aspirational country. And I think what we did was necessary, but not sufficient. And the aha has been, there are, it may not be true in 50 years, but, you know, for the next 50 and for us to get there, we will leave a bunch of people behind if that's if we only focus on technology jobs. Not everybody wants, not everybody's appropriate, and not everybody is going to be able to perform in a technology-related job. And there are millions and millions of workers out there that are working hard, creating enormous value, but not getting ahead. And the question is how to fix that. I think we're more than ever, we are facing a kind of existential crisis in the country. It's really driven by, I'd say, two separate forces. One is a bias, or you could call it another crisis, of exceptionalism versus incrementalism that then drives a crisis of misalignment. And this is a dynamic that's been going on, I think, for quite some time. And left unchecked, I don't actually see a way to to fix the country, frankly. So talk to me a little bit about the crisis of incrementalism versus exceptionalism. My comments feel a little dire, but I should preface it by saying that, look, the you know, we're a relatively new country and enormously successful and fabulous place. And we've got there because we've attracted kind of people that have a similar mindset of, you know, sort of building exceptionalism. And we've been that way for hundreds of years, a couple hundred years. And we've survived crises like this, whether it was the four industrial revolutions that could have upended and caused, you know, kind of the same problem. So I have a lot of high hopes that this creates opportunity in the crisis. But let me tell you, let me just kind of describe the reason why I moved from venture to more private equity-based uh, investments. So as it turns out that the venture industry is, first of all, as an asset class narrowly focused, uh, also in terms of the amount of money that it controls is narrowly focused. But it exists in a much larger universe with a huge amount of capital associated with it. And in the private equity world, I think around $3 trillion, and I'm not sure, it's, I'm sure, approaching 100 million jobs in the U.S., and more importantly, it affects a lot of goods and services, I think, that you know all Americans actually have. That asset class is actually an interesting one to look at because it almost retards 
for some dynamics I can describe, it almost retards exceptionalism by design. And when you have that much money and that many people's jobs controlled by that, when it really needs to be pointed at exceptionalism, because that's what the country's been founded on, it becomes a problem. So the mechanics at play there are that private equity investors generally have, you know, they don't have $100 million funds. Like venture capitalists, they have multi-billion dollar funds or $100 billion funds. And the dynamics are that it's better to accumulate assets and do risk mitigation than risk management. Because if you can get into a narrow range of returns, then you can accumulate more assets. It's a funny dynamic. So there is very little reward in that industry, in that asset class for trying to get to like exceptional returns. When you manage investments that way, what happens is you get up incrementalism. So you don't get exceptionalism. You don't get the exceptionalism that we've seen in you know, technology companies. And the way that interplays with alignment of interests is, I think, in a funny way. And when you have an expanding, a rapidly expanding set of economics, as we do in the technology industry, what happens is everybody participates because there's enough to go around. So all the employees, all the advisors, all the people have an ownership stake? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. You know, I don't know how many listeners are, you know, either in a startup or a a public technology company, but I'm sure they're all shareholders. And that doesn't exist in this asset class. And as a result, what happens is there's a few people in the company that usually participate, and it creates this this really big divide. And it's self-reinforcing because there are a lot of people that are loyal and hardworking, but at some point, if you're not part of the kind of, you don't have your piece of the pie, you're not gonna contribute in the same way as somebody that does. And to make a company successful, I've been in enough, started enough companies and you've been involved in enough to know, it takes everybody. And so you get this crisis of alignment where people just don't give a shit or they don't give as much of a shit as if, if it was their thing. They're not an owner. And that leads to incrementalism in, instead of exceptionalism. And frankly, most people, I think, you know, people have moved to have clawed their way here, have uh, grown up here and appreciate the country for American exceptionalism. And this combination of crisis, I think, creates an opportunity, but right now it creates an enormous threat to, I think, the future of the country. We are the, I don't want to seem like an arrogant American, but shit, if we can't do it, who the hell's going to? I think, you know, I was talking to somebody that did a lot of work in China, and I think there's just, there's a very different dynamic there given how many people. So there's just an aggressiveness that's coming out of China as they're emerging. So one might say, if we don't do it, maybe we'll see it in other countries. And that's probably not the key point here. I mean, one of the things I wanted to go back to on is, you know, just, you know, from a personal experience, like my first job right out of college, I was at a tech company in the Bay Area. I got a couple thousand shares, and that became worth six figures to me three years later at like 25. I mean, that was life-changing money for me. You know, we and we all were aligned. We worked really hard. It was the heart of that company. And then you see folks that, you know, go out and work in Reno that, are, that work harder than I do. You know, there are excellent workers that don't work in a, in a company like that, and they don't have those types of 
they don't have that opportunity. They don't have the equity shareholders. They don't have those opportunities for wealth creation. And that really resonates with me. I'm definitely curious just to go back real quick when you're talking about like the dynamics in private equity. So what I heard you say is, you know, private equity looks for return criteria. I don't know what it is, like 10 to 13% IRR, something like that. Look, whereas, if, you're, if you're a top tier private equity firm, you're, you, you return net 15% and that's like unbelievable. And you probably can get by with like, as long as you don't have much variation, you can get a buy with like 10, 12%, right? And what's the situation in venture? I mean, venture, every deal they're looking for 100x or 10x, sorry, not 100x. Yeah, but, but it's a portfolio, right? Sure. So, you know, the best venture funds are returning, you know, crazy 40, 50, sometimes 60, 70%, you know, IRR. You can't survive in venture very long because of the risk profile at, you know, much less than 20, you know, net 20. And the, that puts a, that pressure tests you in a way that's just different, right? That you have to take calculated risks. The other, I mean, there are a lot of dynamics. Availability of cheap money right now is not particularly helping exceptionalism either because you can get relatively, you know, not to get into sort of the mechanics of debt financing, but you can essentially arbitrage debt in companies to get decent returns. And I do that in some situations. But that's that makes you less aspirational. I don't want to cast aspersions on that because there are a lot of people that do create value. They, you know, there are a lot of people's pensions that depend on, you know, sort of consistent returns. But we have to find a solution for how we actually create exceptionalism in non-technology companies so that we can create, we can solve that crisis so we can continue to move the country forward in in the way that I think is hopefully our destiny. And secondly, so that it creates this alignment and allows us to actually not just be fair, because the thing you described about workers not participating I have to tell you, it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do because I have seen it both in technology and in, in more industrial companies. When you get that alignment, you get better, you just get better performance. Yeah, people are more committed to the company. I mean, I know when I was at Brio, I mean, it was, we were all in it. You know, we were up, we were working, I mean, it was a tech company, so that was yeah. sort of the standard. But there's probably not a week that goes by you don't read something about disempowered workforce and, you know, all these people leaving the workforce. All those things have got to be linked to lack of employee engagement or lack of alignment at some level. I mean, there's a big shift going on. I don't want to overstate it. Do you it. think, you know, there's this, the news is about employer retention, right? You think we'd be having an employer retention problem if there was good alignment with the employees? I mean, I just read multiple studies. I just have to laugh. They're like, they're stating the obvious. It's like, I think that's actually a good thing that comes out of COVID amongst all the other really crappy things, but, you know, that we have to start actually, I think it's going to be both good for the companies and good for the employees that we have to start thinking more employee-centric. I think it'll help the employees get into better jobs, get training, get, you know, I think get wages that are reasonable, but it's going to help. And we've done a lot of work in this. It will help increase productivity and profits <laughs> because they're, you know, we've strained. COVID showed that we broke a lot of things, right? Like the obvious one is the supply chain. We'd over-optimize the supply chain to the point where a little perturbation created 
it was so optimized you couldn't recover. We're still trying to recover. It'll take quite some time. And the same things in the workforce. We've like over-optimized the workforce so that it's fragile and brittle. And, you know, we now have an opportunity, I think, for companies to rebuild their workforce. And by the way, my experience in the last several years has been that technology has a role to play in this because many companies are going to require not just think uh, this, I think, focus on the employees, but they need to focus on innovation and exceptionalism. And a lot of that is going to be incorporating either management techniques that we've learned because we were in fast-moving environments in technology companies or technology itself. There's an old saying that, you know, you can be disrupted or the disruptor, right? There's a lot of disruption obviously happening, but there are a lot of traditional companies where the workforce can get retrained and we can sort of reimagine what they ought to be rather than what they are. And in doing that, we're going to make them grow faster. I think it's a huge opportunity for probably for some of the folks that are listening to think about. Well, and, you know, so you're not suggesting you take private equity investors and turn them into venture investors. That would be just sort of foolhardy. But the dynamics of that are reinforcing this incrementalism. And, you know, you've mentioned we need, you know, we need to take some of the lessons from tech around culture and employees and, and technology and apply these to, the, to some of these more, um, you know, the private equity companies. So what are some of the solutions you think? Kind of dive into a little bit of what do you think is practical, and maybe what are some of the impediments to doing that? I mean, I've talked a lot about the impediments, right? Like, there are a lot of forces in the economy that are about incrementalism, and I think we have to buck those. I think we need policy that actually doesn't reinforce that, that actually encourages exceptionalism and this concept of alignment. What would be a policy? I mean, just one example of what something like that would be. You know, let's come back to that in a second, because I want to answer the other question first, and it might actually set that up. So, I've been involved with several companies it would be odd for you to think of for me to be involved with given my background, but everything from a chocolate and nut company, tamale company, especially materials company that makes metal coatings and brazing powders and one of the larger trucking companies. And, you know, and I can keep going on and on. And these are all pretty good sized companies. You know, they're doing 500 million to a couple of billion dollars in revenue, but they're increment, you know, they largely have been incremental companies and I think this is generally true across the country. There are a bunch of, what I would say, incremental exceptionalists trapped in incremental bodies, right? It's also kind of a lesson in humbleness rather than arrogance to think that, you know, all the smart guys ended up in tech and all the people that are big dreamers and exceptionalists ended up. It's true to at least a partial extent, but there are amazing entrepreneurs and exceptionalists and aspirational leaders that are trapped in, you know, what I would call incrementally minded businesses. And so you ask the question, what's the first step? Well, the first step is to find those people and they're prevalent, right? Which is great. I spent a lot of time talking to, you know, management teams and I'm always surprised, you know, I'm always surprised by how much people really want to be exceptional. So the first thing is find those people and they're, they're not going to be hard to find and then create the environment and the structure for them to be that. <laughs> And that's the first step. And it has to be done in the confines of whatever the company and the investor and the investment is. But it really ends up being imagining uh, for any given company industry where that company 
wants to be 10 years from now versus where it wants to be next quarter. Uh, interesting. So really, you know, what I'm hearing you say is find the exceptional entrepreneurs and free them from sort of short-term thinking and give them the opportunity to think more long-term and then provide us the financial structure and support to do that. Is that right? So almost everybody that's operated in these traditional companies, they have aspirations and they also understand like if you allow them to think about it, they can imagine or you can help them think about where they need to be in, you know, five or 10 years. Like we can example of a couple of the food companies. Look, there's a huge trend towards healthy, paleo, all sorts of trends that are happening, also towards authentic food. I mean, you can essentially take the macros and a lot of companies are producing a product that was valid in the market 10 years ago and is rapidly becoming less interesting. And you see this all the time in actually in the food industry, right? You know what happens. So, you know, most of these management teams and employees actually, because they've been in these companies for a long time, understand they just haven't been allowed to figure out. So if you say, okay, what do we want to be, you know, five years from now, like, let's forget what we have and let's figure out where we're going to go and where we want to be. And then we're going to work backwards and chart a course there. And that's, that's how a technology company works, right? You know, you come up with a big, hairy vision, you know, it's like, it, you don't have any idea how you're going to get there, but that's the vision. And then you work backwards to like what you're going to do. You have that North star that's not incremental, it's exceptional, it's it's hyperbolic growth. And then you have to work backwards because, they, you know, look, we live in an environment where you can't, these companies are not companies you drive to zero. So you don't take, you know, you don't take huge risk, but you figure out, you know, again, how to not risk eliminate, but you figure out how to risk manage. So you take calculated risks. And the same thing we do, you know, as good entrepreneurs is, you know, you experiment and you get data. And as you get conviction, you sort of increase the bet. You know, what I'm here to say is that it doesn't just work in software, it works everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, so is there something about the way that private equity is structured that prevents that? I mean, that's probably one element. I mean, you know, I've got to imagine as, as a startup, as a founder, you're very scrappy. And as you start to build systems and structure to build more consistency, you start to lose some of that scrappiness. So what I'm how do you get that back when you're a $500 million company? I mean, it's part of that's maybe pressure from investors, but then also that's structural inside of your organization. Well, look, you know, I can give you lots of examples of, you know, famous tech companies that, you know, are much larger like Amazon that haven't lost that edge. So I think there are lessons to be learned there. I think it's, again, there's not to pick on private equity because I think, you know, we have the same problem in the public markets, right, that cause the same thing to happen, which is incrementalism, right? It's like, it's really around, you know, kind of the investor mindset. Yeah, I think we have to change it. And I think it's going to be a journey, but I think it's super important to do it because if we don't, we're going to, you know, essentially eat our young, right? It's going to be a reversion of the mean. And I don't think we can produce tech companies fast enough to solve that problem. Yeah. One of the things I think about is this sort of short-termism, you know, the quarterly return cycle puts a lot of constraints on these public companies. Is that what you're talking about in terms of, you know, having to rethink some of that? I think so. And I'm not the world's best policy expert for sure. As you know, I've been a proponent of some things in our state and on a national basis, I think it's really worth a rethink. I'm going to probably stray into some funny areas here, but I think the popular meme of the day is tax the rich, right? I didn't attend the gala or wear the dress, but, you know, it seems to be the hot topic. And you have to think about 
that particular kind of phrase, which is the goal actually is to create, you know, the, the, the policy goal on that is to level the playing field. And the tactic is income redistribution. And you have to really think about, again, it comes back to this crisis of alignment of interest. Is that the real way that you actually achieve that goal? I don't think so, because it doesn't feel, there's a lot of great things that the government does, but supporting entrepreneurialism and exceptionalism, not so much, right? That gets supported by entrepreneurs. So we really need to think a carrot and stick approach where there's more of a incentive for people to do some of the things we, we've been discussing so that there's not, and maybe some disincentives to do things that, that are hurtful, but taking money. We have fabulous entrepreneurs and business-minded people and employees and problem solvers, you know, in the economy. Let them go do the work, get the alignment on that. I think we can create structures like that. Yeah. And just to put a bit of a finer point on the alignment, I mean, what we're really trying to talk about is, you know, narrowing the wage or the gap between an employee pay, but look at, well, not just employee but pay, but looking at it from a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if I work at a private equity or public company, finding ways of providing more options, more equity opportunity for participation so that when the company is successful, they're seeing a, a larger percentage of that equity growth in their own portfolios. Yeah, I don't think we can close an opportunity gap without addressing an equity, you know, kind of equity participation. And there are other people who have recognized it, by the way, you know, by the way, I've spent some time with um, one of the, I think the folks I work with are uh, Palladium Equity, and they're very forward-thinking folks. And I spent some time with uh, KKR and some other private equity firms. KKR people have been at this for 10 years. They've actually created a whole center for equity participation, and uh, they have a lot of data Again, that suggests, and we have from our companies, that suggests that when you do the right thing, it's a smart thing because it increases profitability. And there's a fun equation which you know goes increased participation by for employees equals better productivity equals better profits equals better you know participation by employees and shareholders. And it's um, you know kind of a holistic approach to it. And there are like dozens of examples. You know, we've been in the metals company I'm involved with. We've given shares out to everybody all the way down to the foundry floor. And we've seen a huge increase in our safety record and our employee suggestion program that saved, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year in retention and, you know, things that are huge economic boons. And by the way, these people, when we have an exit in the company, will get a meaningful amount of money that will not just, you know, affect their lives, but allow their, give them the ability to affect their children's lives. Yeah. Which is so powerful, and I mean, and that all flows down to communities. I don't know if you're following this, the recent acquisition of uh, Mailchimp by Intuit, but the people are up in arms over the fact that not many of the Mailchimp employees had equity. So there was like this twelve billion dollar transaction, and it's not minting a bunch of new millionaires in that community. And so people really in look Atlanta, at that. yeah, in Atlanta, yeah, it had almost no venture money in it either. So. Well, so there you go. So what a missed, you know, one of the things that we always talk about in our ecosystem is we're we're waiting for that company to have a big success and mint a bunch of new entrepreneurs, and which is that flywheel effect we've seen in many other communities. And and again, this sounds like an example of a really missed opportunity. There's a bunch of people that made a lot of money and a lot of people that work really hard that didn't 
participate in that. That's really the problem you're talking about. Yeah, I don't, you know, look, that's- I, I don't know that deal specifically. I don't know the specifics of that deal, but other than I know it didn't have a lot of, it didn't have a lot of investment in it. So it was closely held company. So the founders and- Potentially employees would have made a lot of money on that deal. Yeah. You know, working with early stage companies and a lot of entrepreneurs through EO, you know, there's definitely mixed opinions about bringing your employees in as shareholders. I mean, there's a lot of concern about or a lot of talk about like I've taken the risk and they haven't and all of those kinds of things get played around. But at the end of the day, I think what you said earlier is best. It takes everybody for a company to be successful and to find a more equitable balance in that is good for everybody. And I think that's the mindset that we need to get. I see that attitude usually in first time because it's it's also this uh, it's this crisis of alignment, which is it looks like a really rapidly expanding pie to you and I, but to the the person that's at the center of this, it's like, you know, they're, I think they're nervous about sharing. And frankly, I, I can't say that I didn't have kind of the same headset when I was younger, but as you, you know, kind of as, as you go through a couple of transactions or as through life, you, you know, you realize, you know, as I said at the you know top of the show, it's not the money you make, but the people you accumulate and the relationships you accumulate. You, you have to come to what's important in your life and and also a sense of fairness. But I would still maintain that you can succeed in those environments. There are a lot of assholes that are very, you know, that are very successful, but you have to ask yourself, could I be more successful? <laughs> and would it really cost me that much? And boy, I'd sleep better at night. <laughs> yeah, no, I, look, I completely agree with you. And I mean, all the downstream effect in our communities. I mean, there is something about this, you know, if, if it's an existential crisis, well, which I, I tend to agree, that's a huge crisis, that this could be a point of national pride where people really come get behind, like, how do we empower? It's like kind of the next push in labor movement or something. I, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to get involved with the unions, but like, how do we really treat all of our workers fairly for the work they're doing and give them an opportunity to participate. And and what I'm hearing you say is not just a feel good, I mean, which is great, but it really makes good business sense. And there's data to support. There's a lot of data to support it. I don't want to lose sight of the flip side of this, which is a macro piece of it. Well, there are two macro pieces. One is we just can't, you know, the, the income disparity can't continue without consequences. It's even if you don't believe it's the right thing to do, <laughs> you got to believe that at some point, this is, you know, this is the stuff that serious divisions are made out of. So it just can't go on and it really shouldn't. It's not appropriate. But the flip side of this is we need to solve the crisis of exceptionalism because so that we can actually solve the crisis of alignment and, and the you know, opportunity gap. But more importantly, the future prosperity of the country depends on us pushing ourselves to do exceptional things. And there's a lot wrapped up in that, but I think reclaim American exceptionalism. And we have to imagine where we want to be, not where we are. And if we do that, and again, there have been so many opportunities in this, you know, over the history of the country and mankind, to be honest, that it gives you hope, but we have to get moving on it. And the other thing, just as a reminder, that gives you hope is I think the you know, we talk about the tech revolution, but I think there's like a traditional company revolution that needs to happen. There are a bunch of companies that are out there, like some of them described to you that you would never imagine could get to, you know, 100% growth, but they can. That's world changing. 
Like when you can take a hundred year old metal company and reimagine it as something else, like as a producer of specialty materials that go into the latest uh, medical devices or additive manufacturing or airplanes or, uh, you know, a whole set of things. It's transformative to the people, it's transformative to the company, and it's transformative to the economy because, you know, again, we're we're not satisfied with like, oh, we're going to do a little bit better than we did yesterday. No, we're going to make something. We're going to use our 100 years of expertise to go change the world just, for instance, in additive manufacturing, like make stuff that's – make material that can produce parts you couldn't produce before. That's what's going to propel the country forward on an economic basis and on a social basis when we do that. A rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, it sounds to me like we have to get, I mean, there's so many different areas where we, there could be interventions to support this. I mean, one of the things as you're talking, I'm just thinking there's a whole class of MBAs that have grown up in a particular view of how to run companies. You know, I was thinking about my own experience in the medical device world. We partnered with a $2 billion company from 1868. And, you know, their idea of innovation was literally like, changing the color of the box. And we had a totally new technology. Now, unfortunately, that partnership didn't totally work out. And I appreciated the CEO for taking the risk, but you could see there was a lot of disincentives for them to take a risk. Had that technology worked out, it would have been a whole new category for them at really high margins. But I guess my point is you got all of these people that have gone through business school and kind of grown up in this model that is led to this incrementalism. How do you shift those folks? I mean, is it we have to wait for a new cadre of young leaders or do you do it at the board level or i think you you have to start a revolution right and a revolution starts locally <laughs> it's an awesome question because it's the thing i ask myself every day like I, you know i i've spent my life figuring out how to scale things and the reason why reno was exciting to me is it was like a place where you could nail it to scale it right and i think we did end up being kind of a blueprint for other cities and I think similarly, you've got to figure out the mechanic. I mean, there's it's a complicated question. I just don't have all the answers. But I think it's a combination of things. One, we talked a little bit about, I think, about either, you know, policy or regulatory that encourages, you know, it's more carrot than stick. So, you know, there might be tax credits instead of taxation for more broad-based sharing, right? It's the same principle, you know, for EVs, right? Like, we don't overly tax people that drive gas cars, we incent people to buy EV cars, right? And it's been wildly successful, right? It's that, you know, those kinds of incentives. So a policy that incents exceptionalism, that incents risk-taking, that incents broad-based equity participation. And we could go into, you know, I do have a number of ideas around that. I think that's a piece of it because it now, the people that are less, and the investors are less aspirational, you have to lead them with their, you know, with their wallets. So that's an important step. And I think we have to start getting people like, who are hopefully listening to this podcast, excited both a little scared and a little excited about going out and making this kind of difference. You know, we need a set of entrepreneurs that, and I would encourage people to think about not just starting the next web-based or mobile-based, but think about a hard industrial company that you might be able to go in and, and figure out how to create a more exceptional environment in. And then I think the the last piece, and again, it's much more complicated than that, And the, but the thing I'm working fairly hard on is 
to get success stories, right? Because things that motivate are fear and greed. I think if we can get, you know, it was true. It's been true in the tech industry, right? You know, I've been part of companies that, you know, we sort of, we were super successful and people copied us and that was great out of fear and greed. So fear of being left behind and, and greed for making money. So if we can show that doing the right thing is also the smart thing and we can make more money with it and we have some examples, then I think you actually start to open people's minds. So that's kind of the, you know, the rough strategy. And if you can do it in a few places, then you can, you know, as I said, nail it to scale it. So I really resonate with what you're saying, Robert. I mean, one of the things is you're talking about policy. You could imagine how some things that are wildly unpopular are the incentives you give companies to relocate to a community. And these are unpopular everywhere. They don't, you know, people look at They're it as They're terrible, corporate. by the way. I agree. However, you know, you could use that incentive structure to drive behavior. So one of the incentive changes they made in Nevada was that they required you to have health insurance. Seems like a basic thing, right? But we don't want companies here that pay under a certain amount that don't provide health care for all their employees. You could see another criteria for tax incentives to provide equity participation across a majority of your workforce or something along those lines. Again, I've had that conversation with as long ago as a couple of years ago, and particularly on our equity incentive packages, uh, which were appropriate, you know, quite frankly, 10 years ago, even five years ago, and they're wholly inappropriate now because they incent actually, I think, the wrong things, not even neutral things. It needs a rethink by policymakers. Look at the federal level, and I've had conversations with some of Nevada's national politicians, but, you know, others in Washington, you know, about it. And I think they're worried because, look, when I tell you that private equities products are consumed by a large number of Americans. One of those products is healthcare uh, across a vast variety of things. And do you want, you know, the healthcare system of our country based on incrementalism or exceptionalism? And healthcare is just one example of this where the health and well-being of the country, the prosperity of the country is dependent on us returning to this. It's a serious policy conversation. It's been an interesting one because when you describe it to people that are concerned about that, right, or concerned about healthcare, which fortunately we have, you know, we have a lot of well-intentioned policymakers, they just don't understand this crisis of alignment, right? Like we are not aligned, you know, we are not, you know, the economics are not aligned for the outcomes we want, right? It just, it isn't. And there could be some key changes made that I think a lot, you know, kind of align those incentives. Yeah. This is such an interesting conversation, Robert. And I, what I know about you is that you will continue to work tirelessly to affect change anywhere you go, whether it's on the boards, whether it's politically or in the community. And so I'm just excited to see where you take this. You know, it's been a fun journey when we started Blueprint. And, you know, I was just recounting with Brian and we were counting up the number of like legitimate technology startups in Reno that are doing reasonably well. And the number is something like over 60, which doesn't sound like a ton, but- Oh, no, it's huge. We had nothing nothing (laughs) three or four years ago. You and Brian worked your asses off, so thank you for that. It's what I I remember about that. And Katie, by the way. You can't leave leave Katie out. But it started with a vision. And so I really appreciate your vision. I think that it is- 
you know, it's being refined. What we started with Blueprint has now been refined through your own experiences. And I'm excited to see where you go with that. And I hope that we can get this, we can affect change in this throughout all of our different circles, whether that's government or in the boards or what have you. So I, I'm I'm excited to see where this goes. Great. So look, you know, my best advice for anybody and for anybody that took the time to listen to this is I'd be happy to discuss with you and debate, you know, one-on-one. But my best piece of advice is imagine where you want to be, not where you are. That's the secret. Well, I love it, Robert. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me. What a great conversation. I look forward to all the new fun things we get to do together. Doug, thank you. I really appreciate you making the time and providing the opportunity. That sounds good. 